Good morning, folks, once again. So, these are the paper in the, in the introduction section already, which is great. So, um, in case you missed it first time round, uh, I'm Russell. Um, a member at uh, Harvest Glasgow, been there for a little while. I can only apologise as a starter. This is uh, me and my family's um, first visit to Harvest Air. Shocking. I mean, really unbelievable. I'll, I'll be chastised later, I'm quite sure. Uh, they've been very kind so far, but perhaps you'll pick up with me later on. Um, but yeah, it's so great to be with our church family uh, down here, and that's very much how we see you uh, as part of our, our leader church family. We've been uh, blessed to be um, worshiping with you guys at different points. Some folks have come up to uh, different church services, uh, Harvest Men, Harvest Ladies at different points, but just great to see you. What an amazing uh, facility you guys have got here. Uh, quite apart from anything else, as Lee continually has pointed out this morning, it's warm, um, which is in direct uh, contrast to uh, our building, which is when we go outside, everyone uh, can take their jacket off uh, and, and warm up. So, uh, so yeah, great, great to have a, a great facility here. Lovely to be able to see the, the, the kids doing some actions. I'm going to try not to be too drawn to that while, while, while I speak to you all this morning. But, yeah, thankful as well to, uh, for, for the time of worship this morning. Uh, and just hopefully that's been an opportunity for us all to... I suppose take a, a, a little step out of the week past, the day to come, the week to come, and really focus in on the Lord this morning. We're going to spend some time uh, in Micah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8 this morning. Um, so if you're struggling to find it, um, best idea is to go to Nahum and just flick back. Um, uh, but for those who have a digital uh, facility, it's kind of killed off sword drill somewhat, uh, it would be the reflection, I suppose. Um, uh, just be able to scroll through and find it. But while you're finding that, my prayer is that we'll be able to lean into this together this morning um, and that we'll be able to, I suppose, allow and, and ask God to, to guide us, to teach us, uh, to, um, to, to, I suppose, to give us a fresh perspective on his word this morning and that we would be open and available to that this morning as his followers and as, as his people. So um, just while you're getting there, as Lee, Lee was asking about uh, early stage of Glasgow and what that was like, I suppose it's to say we also had the great joy of seeing the earliest developments of, of Harvest Air uh, and really how that kind of came about and all the work and all the prayer and all the time that was spent uh, getting towards that point and the Lord's faithfulness in all of that. And so for me to stand here this morning, uh, I think I've been describing uh, preaching, which I don't do very often, as, as a terrifying privilege. Uh, and I would maintain that this morning, but it is a privilege uh, to come and spend some time with you guys this morning, uh, knowing all that the Lord did to get you here. Uh, and really a chance to look back at the Lord's faithfulness, uh, and that's something we want to do this morning as well. So I'm going to read our passage, uh, and then we'll pray, and we'll see where we go from there, very much with, with the Lord's help, we, we hope. So uh, Micah chapter 6, hopefully that's given you time to get there. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And you enduring foundations of the earth, the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. What happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Let's pray. 
Father God, just thankful to you for this morning, thankful to you for your word, uh, for the, the, just that as a gift to us as your people. Father, I pray that as we gather around it this morning, that you would uh, give us fresh eyes to see it, you'd give us fresh ears to hear it, Lord, and that you'd be doing a work in our hearts to, to change us um, and to help us to grow into the, the folks that you create us to be, Father. We pray that in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. Okay, so before we get in earnest, um, it's important to put this past in context. Uh, it wasn't written in isolation, but I'm not going to spend an awful lot of time in the, the full historical context of, of Mike. I hope you'll forgive me for that, uh, and feel free to call me at the end if you feel I've taken any liberties uh, with, with, with a particular passage. But uh, I want to take it very seriously and want to make sure that whenever we're listening to God's word, that we, we do make sure that it is in context and it is um, spoken clearly and, 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 and rightly. So uh, it's, a, it's a serious offer. If you want to call me later on, that's fine. Um, so Micah, Micah was a prophet. Um, and the book of Micah is pretty much him speaking to the people of Israel from God and delivering a message of judgment for their behaviour and for their turning away from him. He does also look ahead to the coming of Christ uh, and the hope that will bring, but it's clear that there's going to be judgment and there's going to be suffering before that hope and that peace. He prophesied at a similar time to Isaiah and maybe unsurprisingly had very similar things to say to God's people. So we join here at a pretty low point for God's people. Uh, they've turned away from him, they've worshipped other gods, uh, and it seems that they've been able to get a bit of maybe what they, they want in the moment, and they're content to ignore God, and he rightly has a significant issue with this. Our passage today focuses on a short but important section of the book where Micah is stating God's case against his people to them and making clear his view on the current and recent attitudes and behaviours regarding him. My hope is that as we read through this, we, we give some thought to, uh, uh, give some thought to it this morning. We won't just kind of tut and shake our heads uh, at Israel's disobedience and their apparent lack of capacity to understand what God's saying and instructing, but we we'll maybe look for ourselves in the passage, and we might see what God would have to say to our hearts now. So, if we look into the passage, I'm going to be using four pretty loose headings, not great at headings, um, but for those taking notes, hope that's helpful. Um, so, the first heading is going to be when God speaks, as people should listen. So verses 1 and 2, if we look at that together. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, that the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. So Micah has been sent by the Lord to clearly, loudly and unswervingly state God's issue with his people. Creation is to hear and to stand witness to his displeasure and to understand Israel's sin. The language here is more of a courtroom, with Micah there to state God's case for the prosecution. So this is really serious, and really only a fool would have ignored Micah at this point, so uh, let's pay attention to what the Lord has to say. Uh, in verse 3, he picks up, Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. So God's clearly unhappy with his people, but he is, and always will be, a relational good. So let's look at how he begins his indictment, his legal argument. Oh my people. He doesn't say, oh Israel, he doesn't say, oh sinful nation, oh my people, despite your actions, you're still mine, and I'm still yours. We're connected, and I haven't discarded you or walked away as some might have thought I would, or would expect. What have I done to make you feel that your actions are reasonable and defensible and fair? Tell me, be specific. How have I wearied you, the Lord's saying? In what ways? How have I drained your enthusiasm for me? Talk to me. Answer me. 
So he asks these questions, uh, and now as he goes on to detail his work in their lives, it's almost like he's given the people some thinking time to come up with some examples, but really not at all, because they're very much rhetorical questions the Lord's asking here. But it leads us to our next heading, that God's people need to remember what he's done for them. We need to remember what, what, what God has done for us. Verse 4, So I brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery and sent before you Moses and Miriam and Aaron. We, or perhaps it's just me, very often read these passages and where events, people, places are mentioned, kind of gloss or skirt over them. Maybe just acknowledge that it was probably a significant historical event because it's in the Bible. And maybe worthy of note, unless it's a really very well-known one, in which case I enjoy knowing the context and uh, I feel better about overall biblical knowledge in that situation. But this morning I want to get a little bit of time to work through the examples God uses through Micah to try and show why these examples, these exact examples, are important and why we should maybe take a bit more time with these kinds of references and these kinds of passages. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. This is the Lord speaking to his people. Almost like, while you're thinking about all the ways I've wearied you, here are some of the things I've done for you as your God. I set you free from earth, slavery to earthly masters. Israel were in Egypt under a harsh regime. They were forced to work as slaves or treated poorly. They toiled with no end in sight and no alternative. They were bound and God released them and promised them a new and better life. He rescued their life from the certainty of death in that slavery because not only were they slaves in Egypt, they were worked to death on many occasions and they were certainly destined to die as slaves in a foreign land that wasn't their own. God rescued their life from that inevitable and inescapable destiny. And he promised them a land of their own with him. He then gave them an identity and a status. I am your God and you are my people. They were slaves in a foreign land burnt, bound to serve kind of the whims and, and, and or fickle and usually cruel earthly master. They had no hope and no future. And God called them his chosen people and promised them inheritance as his holy set apart people. And then in the necessary wilderness after they left Egypt, he gave them guidance through the teaching and direction of Moses, Aaron and Miriam because there were people in need of direction and leadership. needing people to show them and teach them God's ways and he provided them that for them so that they could follow him. And I think we can probably relate to some of that in our own lives. He gave them care through light, shade, food, water uh, throughout the wilderness. So he gave them light in the dark, shade in the heat. He fed them when they were hungry, gave them water when they were thirsty. He understands their needs and is gracious and generous God who loves them and protects them even when they complain and have no gratitude. And then he allowed them to, to know him as they journeyed and to see his character and his acts for them and among them. On the long journey through the wilderness, he let them grow in their understanding of who he is and what he's capable of doing for, with, and through them. God is really saying, I'm a loving, powerful, and faithful God who has shown you kindness when you need me most. It's so easy to miss this. Please don't miss this. It's just a well-known story. This is a story that was taught at school when I was at primary school. Things have changed over the years. Um, but that sense of it being a story. This is more than a story. If you've chosen to follow the Lord and call yourself a Christian, this is your story. My life, your life, was one that was locked in slavery to sin. Far from God, destined to an eternity apart from God, dead in that sin. I had no inheritance, I had no identity with God and no reason to expect his provision or grace. 
But through the saving work of Jesus on the cross, I was freed from the slavery of sin and earthly masters of that kind of culture and worldly expectation, the sin that leads to death and hell. And instead of a promise of eternal life with Jesus as a co-heir to all that God's promised, I get to live in the light of his grace and his mercy and provision and I get to walk with him through this life or wilderness in my relationship with him. Is that your story? Have you forgotten, as Israel had, what the Lord has done? Who the Lord is and how he's changed your story? So we can continue through the passage, but I would just urge you to try to put yourself into this, even if, and maybe especially if, it feels a wee bit uncomfortable. Verse 5, first half. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. The Lord is saying, I protected you against a powerful king. And I ensured blessing for you when you otherwise would have received curses. I stood in the way, literally, literally stood in the way. Well, I'll give you a reference in a minute, but worth going back to the story. To, it's quite a spectacular story. We don't, we're not here for that this morning. Literally stood in the way to protect you and ensure my promise and plan for you held true. First, he saved his people from slavery in Egypt. Then he provided protection for them. This is really the account that's been referenced from the book of Numbers, chapter 22 where Balak didn't like the fact that Israel were coming into his land and he feared that he and his people would be overrun and destroyed. So he sent for Balaam to, to curse uh, Israel because he'd heard that Balaam's blessings and curses tend to become a reality. However, Balaam asked for the Lord's guidance and ultimately, it was ultimately, obeyed what the Lord instructed. And despite being asked on three separate occasions by Balak to curse Israel, Balaam only gave blessings at the Lord's instruction. The Lord is on the side of his people. He is for you this morning. And he will act to ensure his eternal plan is realized. He's not standing idly by. He's active in your life. He's active in the life of his people. Second half of verse 5. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. This is about the journey of God's people into the promised land, to the rest that was promised to his people through Israel hundreds of years previously. So what did happen? Well, this is really a story of Israel's unfaithfulness and God's steadfast faithfulness. And really that's what happened between uh, Shittim and Gilgal. Shittim was the final place that Israel stayed before crossing into the land God had promised. While they were there, they must have grown pretty comfortable and liked the look of Moabite culture because they liked it so much they began engaging in sacrifices to the local gods, uh, the Baal of Peor, uh, which led ultimately to sexual immorality and a variety of other behaviours resulted in a plague and a punishment from God on Israel and those involved before ultimately the people returned to God. And this was really the picture of people's unfaithfulness. That's, that, that's the, the picture from, uh, from Shittim. So in being saved and protected by the Lord, God's people still chose to prioritize the culture around them and put themselves at odds with his plans and commands. And maybe that sounds familiar this morning in our own lives. Maybe that sounds too familiar. And we'll come back to that a little bit later on. But worth keeping in mind that we're in this story, folks. The crossing to Gilgal, uh, that was the first place that they stayed in the promised land. Uh, it involved carrying the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan in flood season. So God's people had to trust his goodness. They had to trust his faithfulness. And as a result, they walked into the promised land on dry land. They even built an altar there so that future generations would remember God's faithfulness. So what happened between Shittim and Gilgal? God demonstrated his holy standard. Absolutely, his holy standard was demonstrated in Shittim. But he also demonstrated his covenant faithfulness to his chosen people 
um, in the journey to Gilgal, and there's reminding those people that again here today, that they might know, that we might know, the saving acts of their God. And that takes us to our next heading, third heading. God's people need a response to their sin against them. Otherwise, another heading might be, once we know, we need to do something about it. Verses 6 and 7, let's look at that together. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Or will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So now Micah comes with a response from the people. Whilst it's Micah's version, it's based on the patterns uh, of the past, and he's speaking as directed by the Lord here. So it's an accurate example, which I'm sure we can recognise from uh, other accounts across Scripture. Important to notice, and don't miss this bit in the response, there's absolutely at no point any denial or attempt to mitigate what's been levelled against the people of Israel here. There's no point in the, where, ah, but, there's nothing. It's a straightforward recognition of the need to bow in humility before the Most High God and seek his forgiveness as they've sinned against him. They also recognise the scale of the issue. So by offering some huge multiples, I mean huge multiples, of the kinds of offerings they might have expected uh, in, in temples and altars in response to their sins at that time, so calves, rams, oil. They even go to the extreme uh, with the suggestion of sacrificing their firstborn. Maybe a nod to the obedience shown by Abraham and his, uh, his own, uh, with his own son as a way of showing how seriously they're taking it. It's clearly wrong, that's important to note, but at least they articulate that this is a sin of their souls. The issue is that all of these suggested sacrifices are external. There's no change of heart or who they are at the core where it really matters. Isaiah uh, chapter 1 verse 11 to 20 gives a great picture of how the Lord sees these sacrifices. So if you'll indulge me, I'm just going to read that just now. So Isaiah chapter 1, 11 to 20. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling in my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of large assemblies. You're welcome. I had to look that up. Cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This gives a great picture of how the Lord just sees any sacrifices which are simply empty and dutiful. There's a great risk here of presenting God with empty, albeit expensive, religious gestures. And I was reminded of the account in Mark uh, chapter 4. Apologies for jumping around a little bit. Verse 41, this is the, uh, the widow's offering passage uh, where um, I count Jesus uh, here saying, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. 
Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put everything in she had, all she had to live on. Simply giving publicly from abundance doesn't demonstrate a changed heart. Rather, the heart attitude which, sit, which willingly gives all, recognising who is the provider of all things and worthy of sacrifice, shows an understanding of our place before God. It's not so much that the sacrifice or gestures are empty at the time when they happen. I wouldn't want to say that all sacrifices that are listed here are that. That would be unhelpful. But ultimately, they're shown to be empty, but in the overall patterns and priorities of the lives, of our lives oftentimes. And I can see myself in that. I don't know if you can see yourself in that, the, the desire to, to change and to look for forgiveness and to do something differently, which is so real and genuine in the moment, but oftentimes fades as time goes by. And that's the challenge here, is to, to have something which changes internally and not just externally in the moment. Joel, uh, chapter 2, 12 and 13, um, gives a, a great example of what the Lord is looking for. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. There's a brilliant contrast between what God's people would perhaps have chosen to do with the mounting up of these sacrifices and what God requires and desires of them. Return to me with what? With calves, with rams, with oil. Turn to me with your heart. Rend your heart, not your garments. Rend isn't a word I use very often. Um, probably ever apart from this morning. But it describes tearing, ripping, breaking. It's internal. It's intimate. It's personal. It's meaningful. It's not visible. It's between you and the Lord. Return to your God. How are we even able to return to the Lord? Because he is gracious and he is merciful and he's abounding in steadfast love, his word tells us here. This is a soul issue. And the people got that in, in, in the account in Micah. They understood it's a soul issue, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. This is about what's in our hearts and what or who our hearts belong to. We, God's people, are often still too interested and worried about how we're seen and being seen to do the, the right things and be the right things. And we often still neglect the fact that this is about our heart and changing what's inside. This is about our view of God and his work. This is about making a choice to seek his help to live out our faith. Relationship and love of him in this world and how we act, how we speak, how we spend our time. Why would we, why would I prioritise a public show over a close personal relationship with God? A close walk will for sure lead to observable change, so it's not that a visible change isn't important. It's important. But it needs to come from an internal change first and foremost. So God has an indictment with his people and he's been clear that their approach to repenting of it is not what he's looking for. So what is he looking for? Final heading. God graciously shows his people what is needed. Verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God isn't here simply to identify the issue and then leave it to the collective wisdom as people to understand the solution. Micah tells us that God has already told us what's good. 
both throughout Scripture and in the examples he gives in verses 4 and 5, showing both justice and kindness or mercy in Shittim, and demonstrating the importance of his people walking humble, trust and obedience to enter his rest over the Jordan. I love what Matthew Henry says in his commentary about the instructions to come. He says, they are not good because they are commanded, but commanded because they are good. God isn't simply giving new or additional commands, which because they come from him are intrinsically good, although that's true. The commands are good because they mirror his character and he is good. By following his ways, we become more like the people he created us to be and that's the goal, that's sanctification. That's what he wants for us. And what he's required of us is that we do justice, love, mercy. I hope you... Um, I'm going to go with mercy rather than kindness here. If there's any Hebrew scholars amongst us, I apologise, uh, although it's, it is perfectly permissible within the Hebrew. I, um, I believe that mercy is helpful because it, it's kindness, but I think it's kindness that goes further. Um, so I'm going with mercy. I hope that's okay. Again, feel free to tackle me at the end if uh, you feel I've been taking too many liberties with that. So we have to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. So what does that look like? What's he requiring of his people then and as us, his people now? Um, but I want to pause here for a wee minute because um, I want to avoid just giving you a bunch of sound bites and platitudes. Uh, and fair disclosure, I have had this uh, little section of scriptures, my phone wallpaper for years. Uh, yeah, quite a long time now. Um, and I've seen it used in posters and pictures and all over the place. Uh, and it's a really helpful thing. But sometimes I think as Christians, I think sometimes as a church, we throw these things around as if there's a common understanding of what they mean um, and that somehow people should just understand them and that the notion is you should just do it and everything will be okay, whatever it might be. But I want to recognise that what we're about to look at isn't and wasn't supposed to be any easier than the sacrificial system. It was and is supposed to be more meaningful, more honouring to God and more helpful in showing God to the watching world. Sacrifice has become, in many cases, no more than ritual. And God required and desired something more than that, something deeper, something done in his strength and not in our own. This is about a culture of living God's character in the world. This is what this is about. I want to say this morning, really clearly to everyone here this morning, that's not easy. I want to speak directly, I suppose, to anyone this morning who's struggling. I want to say to you, it's not easy. It's easy to read words and to say things, but it's not easy. It wasn't supposed to be easy, by the way. If you're looking around you, leaders in the church, friends, uh, other people in the church from a distance, and you think to yourself, how do they find it so easy to believe and to follow? But it feels so hard for me. Then we as a church family have let you down. And we need to do better at showing you what it is to struggle and to look for God's help. I want to speak to, directly to anyone sitting here this morning who looks around and thinks they don't measure up because others have got this and you don't. It can make you all really uncomfortable now. I hope that's okay. If you ask for a show of hands, I'll take nods uh, as well or just, you know, standing in, in, in intense silence. Um, can I get a show of hands for those who feel they have their walk with the Lord absolutely sorted for those at the front for those at the back put a hand up can I get a show of hands for those who really really wish that they did at the front 
Last one, stick with me. Can you get a show of hands from those who would really appreciate knowing that others struggle too and have honest conversations as you walk together in that? Okay. Can you help each other be better at that? Can you take the opportunity to create a culture here? And you've got such a wonderful opportunity here at Air to create a culture. What an opportunity. That's what I... That, Year two, church plant, that's what I miss. The opportunity to really create culture together as everyone involved. Let's create a culture where nobody in this family ever worries that the only one is struggling. And let's get around about each other to help that progress in walking and asking the questions. Let's not have silences at small group as everyone waits for the same person who seems to know the right answers to speak. Let's ask the question, let's say the thing that's in our heart and be honest about that. Because actually, that's how we grow together and that's what the Lord wants for us. Okay, so back into it. That's my plea to you this morning. Before we jump into these three themes, we need to start from the position that mercy, justice, walking humble submission were all characters clearly shown by Jesus when he was on the earth. I also want to note that these are active instructions, not just about what we think and how we internalise God's goodness to us. There's been an outworking of a changed heart. They are to do justice, to be just, to act justly. They are to do mercy, be merciful, act with mercy. They are to walk humbly, show humility, be humble. And it's all worked out in the world in an observable way with the people God's placed you with. So, I want you to think about the circle of influence that God has given you, because he's given us all one of those. It's firstly very individual. How would you, with God's help and strength, undertake to live and to be and to do these things primarily with those around about you? Your family, your friends, your wider family, your colleagues, your teachers, your boss, your sports team, your friends at the gym, the bridge club, I've got a list here, online gaming friends, social media friends, the chess club, fully inclusive folks. If I didn't get your thing, I'm sorry. I do also want to think about how we as a church and how you as a church also think about the community God's placed us in and how we do the same thing with our neighbours, with the, the older folks in our community, with the more vulnerable, with children, young people, those with addictions, schools, wider community. You get it. Big list. But I want us to focus on our thinking this morning on individuals, our individual situation. Firstly, because unless we as individuals are chasing this, the church simply won't. Because the church can't pour out what is lacking in the individual. So if we as individuals aren't chasing this, the church collective we simply won't have it to give. Also, because it's far easier to think about what everybody else should be doing better than ourselves. And this morning I really want us to think of challenging ourselves. So, let's be challenging ourselves thinking about this, thinking about right now as, as I'm speaking about those in your life right now that God has given you. And let's be asking for God's help with that. I am going to miss your whatever your thing is this morning, probably I might get some folks, but I'm going to miss you. Please don't be upset or think that it doesn't apply to you this morning. It's just a lack of imagination on my part. I apologise. But let's take the principles of this and look to apply what the Lord's saying to our own lives. Because the reality is I won't have a clue whether you do or you don't, and probably the person next to you won't either. This is very much a you and God thing. All three of these areas are intertwined, so none of them are done in isolation. And arguably... The third instruction, uh, walking humbly with the Lord, is the one which underpins everything else anyway. 
I want this morning to be practical uh, and biblical at the same time. So hopefully that's what we manage. So we're going to start off with do justice. So what does it look like to do justice? Well, be just, be fair, be reasonable. Treat people properly and consistently. Behave that way to the extent that you're known for it. So if you behave in a just way so much that you're known for being that person. Don't vary your justice and fairness depending on the individual and how much you like them, frankly. Some scripture references to help us with this. Ezekiel 18.5 begins, If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, so, it then goes on to detail, it's quite a lengthy passage, so I'm, I, I think I'll just give you the highlights. It goes on to detail, having God as the only God in our lives, instructions about sexual purity, uh, fair treatment of the more vulnerable people, financial fairness, honesty, generosity, good treatment of the poor, care for the vulnerable, seeing and actively avoiding injustice, fairness in decisions and following God's way. Comprehensive, character and conduct. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, so if you're doing justly, this is what you're to be about. This is your character and your conduct. If you t- feel free, to, is it on the slides? It is, yeah, excellent. So feel free to take a photo, take a note. These are scripture references. Go back, have a look at them. Luke 12, 32 speaks of our use of money for those in need. Uh, in this time, a real struggle for so many people and with all the disaster and tragedy around the world. As a church, Christians, we ought to want to get involved in that. We ought to want to think, how can we support, how can we be effective uh, with, with what the Lord has given us, recognising him as the giver of all good things. But it needs to be an ongoing attitude and approach rather than simply during this time of credit crunch, we'll step up a little bit and then step back. This is a, life, a lifetime uh, and, a, and a character approach and decision that we have to take. Leviticus 19, the famous love your neighbour as yourself. A series of instructions again around about fairness and equity. Be fair and generous with what you have. Be honest in all areas of your life. Treat those around you fairly, especially if you hold a higher position than them. Look after the vulnerable. It's a recurring theme, folks. Treat everyone with equity. Be reasonable, even in disagreement, as you look to show love. Character, conduct. Genesis 1.27. We're all made in God's image. None of us should assume that we're better than anybody else. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. Let's get into this together and, and, and look to treat folks equally round about us. James 2, um, 1 to 4 and verse 6, sin of partiality. Don't treat people better just because they seem like they've got more and look better. Sometimes we do it, we shouldn't, let's fix that. Proverbs 31, 8 to 9, speaking up for those who have no voice and again, caring for those and looking out for those in need. Doing justly, it's a character and a conduct issue that we need to work with, with the Lord's help on. So what does it look like practically in our lives? That's a lot of headlines. Um, well, it looks like a lot of things, and again, it's for each individual to work out in their own life with the Lord, but it starts with prioritising God in our thinking and attitudes and in actions. It means if we have any authority anywhere in our life, we use that well. If we see people around us struggling in any way, that we look to help them as we can. That we're known for honesty and integrity, and we look to set a standard of godly fairness across our lives because that shows God to those around us. Maybe more specifically, Russell, okay in my life, because that seems fair to pick on me. Uh, it looks like the work that I have, which was described briefly earlier on, I've got the privilege um, of developing policy and activities for the vulnerable children and families in, in South Ayrshire. That's, I've got that privilege and that responsibility. So my responsibility within this would be to make sure that the work 
that we pull together doesn't just work as a broad spectrum, it works for the one, it works for the most vulnerable, the one who's so far from support uh, and, and being connected and helped. And how can we make that big bit of policy work for the, the most vulnerable and draw them in? At home, uh, it looks like me treating my kids with fairness. I'm not looking at them. Uh, I'm not dependent on my mood. You can ask them later. Don't, please. Um, around me in the world, perhaps, it looks like paying what I owe when I owe it. I'm looking for opportunities to bless others with what God has given me. Simple stuff, folks. It's not complicated. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. Love and mercy. Remember where you came from and what you've received. This is, in large part, what God's trying to convey to his people in the opening section that we covered. We need and need God's mercy and grace in our lives, so we ought to love mercifully. We need to demonstrate the mercy we've been shown and how we love and care and treat others. I suppose a shorthand would be how about we extend mercy to others to the same level that we need it ourselves and that we pray for from God, for ourselves. Another translation for this is to love steadfastly, and I love that because uh, it suggests the need to remember the covenant love with what, which God has loved his people, immovable and steadfast, and pursue that relationship with God whilst also trying to live that out in practical ways with the people he puts in our lives. Again, I don't want to get too specific because that's not that helpful, but practically this is about willingness to forgive. It's a, about a willingness to let go of frustrations and hurts we might feel, and to, with God's help, see the people in our lives that we struggle with who have caused us or others we love difficulty as God sees them. Shorthand might be to desire their salvation more than their own satisfaction. Biblical examples, again, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ by grace. The Lord has done that in our lives and offers that. We need to look at how we then mirror that in the world. Jonah, the whole Nineveh thing, not great. Um, all that happened there. But God showed mercy, he relented from disaster. John 8, the woman accused of adultery, caught bang to rights by the law of the time. Jesus showed mercy, showed grace in that situation. Psalm 51, King David, after he committed adultery and had a man killed, threw himself on the mercy which he knew was available to him from the Lord. Asked for that because he knew it was, it was there. Walking humbly with our God, the, the, the last of our, of, of, our, of our three. This isn't about thinking less of ourselves in a negative, self-deprecating sense. It's about having a right view of God and allowing that to influence how we see ourselves and the blessing it is to be in relationship with him and to be part of his plan. It's about knowing our need of God in all aspects of our lives because we've taken time to know him. It's from that humble stance that we can live our lives in light of who he is. The reality is we'll never be able to truly walk humbly until we truly know God. Why would we? But by knowing God, that's how we understand the standard under which we sit. We need to choose to walk with the Lord. Leviticus 26.23 and Amos 3.3 both talk about that decision to walk with. If we're going to decide, if we're going to walk with the Lord, it can only be because we've decided to walk with the Lord. And if that's the case, it will be as a result of taking the time to listen and to read and to begin to know who he is and what he's done. Shorthand for that might be, once we get to know the Lord, we're going to want to walk with him. But it takes that time and that decision to walk with the Lord. Our lives when, walked, 
lived walking humbly with the Lord will naturally point people to God. Certainly will point people to something different which we have the opportunity to identify as God in our conversations with him. Our decision making, our priorities will naturally begin to conform to God's priorities and character and that will be evident in the choices we make and the way we spend our time and money. For any of these outward signs, how we live, how we walk, to have any authenticity or sustainability, there must first have been a work done in our hearts and in our souls. These ways of living don't come from guilt or duty. They come from thankfulness and love. And in God's grace and provision, he doesn't simply require these things as people and then assume we'll attain to them. On the contrary, he knows we can't attain to them without his strength, his provision, his sustaining power. So he graciously offers us all we need to walk in his ways through the gift of his spirit. All we need to do is ask for what's already been promised by the Lord. Does anybody know what the name Micah means? Oh, please. I'm reading from it just now. What does Micah mean? Anybody? I get to feel, I get to feel smart to read it. Uh, I googled it. It means who is like God? Who is like God? What we see this morning is that there's none who are like God. Gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love, rescuer, protector, promise maker, promise keeper, and so, so much more than that. And yet, what we've also seen is his desire and his provision to help us to grow in increasing measure into the people he created and called us to be, which is the image of Jesus, the Son of God. Do you know the Lord this morning? Have you too often forgotten what he's done for you? Would you commit to remind yourself and to seek his help to live as he's called you to? We ask for his help this morning to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him in this world for his glory. Let's pray just ask. Come back up. Father God, thankful to you this morning for the reminder from your word of your character, of your mercy, of your grace of your love for us, Father God. I pray that as we um, think in these things this morning, that you would just give us a, a fresh picture of who you are in our lives, that you would remind us, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would, uh, by your spirit, fill us with awe for you once again, Lord. Um, help us to leave your chains this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>